All right. Well, welcome to Grand Thoughts from Lolly and Pops, a podcast devoted to grandparents raising grandchildren. Our hope is in sharing our journey, we will offer hope and support for you in your journey. Today, I'm real excited. Today, I get to interview Beth Dunn. Beth is a licensed professional counselor with 30 years experience in residential, home-based, community-based, and school-based counseling. She focuses on working with kids and families with adverse childhood experiences and trauma histories. Beth is currently phase one and two certified through Dr. Bruce Perry's Neurosequential Model Network. Welcome, Beth, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. So the first thing I'd like to do is have you share what actually is Neurosequential Model and tell us you know, how that relates, how that can be helpful for grandparents who are raising their grandchildren. Okay. So the neurosequential model uh, was developed by Dr. Bruce Perry and his team at, they used to be called the Child Trauma Academy. Um, And I think they've completely changed their name over to the neurosequential network or neurosequential model network. So to break it down, neuro meaning brain, sequence meaning uh, unfolding or the developmental process of brain development. And so what Perry and his team really emphasize um, are a few things. One, that the brain does develop in a sequential way. So so going from the base, we get the, the brain stem and then the diencephalon, cerebellum, and then the limbic system and then the cortical, and that, that's a way oversimplification, but that um, each of those components or systems, if you will, gets put into place and, and hardwired, softwired and then hardwired up at key moments in human development. So for example, brainstem is in utero and the first two months of life, roughly. Uh, cerebellum, um, is two months to approximately the first year. Limbic is first year on up to about age four, five, um, and then pretty much the rest of the lifetime developing and firing up the the cortical system, the highest part, frontal part of the brain. Um, And and it's, it's an oversimplification of the process. And so one of the things I want to make sure to, to emphasize is it's not like the parts are missing. It's not like you can look at a small child and like there's half of their head is gone kind of thing. It's the components are there. The, the physical structure is there. But a key part of human development is um, wiring up and getting the brain to have billions and trillions of experiences that it then makes memories, or as Perry's team calls them, associations. And each of those associations uh, either becomes, depending on the age, a single neuron. You know, So for example, um, a child is sitting, an infant is in the room, and uh, they hear a woof. And then a big furry thing walks by, and they touch the fur. And they hear the woof, and they touch the fur, and they hear so. There's a neuron attached to the sound woof, and then there's neurons attached to the sensation of fur. And then eventually it's gonna have four feet and ears and a tail. And then somebody in the background is going to keep saying this sound, 
dog or doggy. And those components are all going to be connect. Those associations are all going to be connected together. And when that child is old enough to acquire language, that child's brain will put all of those neurons together and come up with the concept and the word dog. Right. So each one is, a, is an individual association potentially and is potentially an individual neuron. But then if we relied on just single neurons, our brains would be the size of, you know, uh, flat screen TVs in a bar. Right. So our brains do this incredible superpower thing of they're not just individual neurons, but it's also the connective tissues, the connections. So the glia. Uh, and the synapses between, they all get associated so that the brain super fires off of, if I see a big furry thing, my first response may be dog, but then my brain will start firing off the connections of cat, moose, rat, you know, everything that has fur is going to be categorized and lumped together so that I don't have to search my brain and spend 5, 10, 15 minutes every time I see a furry thing trying to figure out what it is. My brain super fires and, and like makes the connections really quickly. Okay. Um, another example of that is if you think about young children developing the capacity to move around. At first, there's wiggling in, you know, when they're laying on their backs. And then they do that cool thing where they flip over and they do their first push-up, right? And then they're crawling around. Um, and then there's the stumbling around the living room, hanging onto the furniture. Then they take their first steps. Then they get the ability to stand on one foot. Um, they get the ability to walk uh, heel to toe and then backwards. And then finally running and sprinting, right? And so... If you looked at an infant and it wasn't sprinting, you wouldn't be worried about that infant at all. They're not supposed to. The, the muscle mass isn't there. The neurons aren't there. The connectivity, the muscle control, the skeletal structure isn't ready for it. But if you look at a 10-year-old child and ask them to sprint across a basketball court and they can't, like they can barely walk across and, and they're stumbling around hanging onto the fence as they cross the court, well, then we have an issue, right? So the neurosequential model takes a look at what is, um, and for, it's forever unfolding, right? But what is the neurotypical, um, we hate to use the word normal, but normal human development, expectable human development. And then it takes a look at what happens when that child is exposed at critical ages to certain types of trauma or adverse childhood experiences? Um, because it's not just the event that happens, it's also how old that child is when the event happens. And even more critically, what are the relationship qualities present for that child to help that child navigate through and, and, and make sense of the event that happened? And so the neurosequential model is this, this, um, it's this overarching 
almost like a, it's not light, it's a paradigm of understanding not only human development and what are the, the neurotypical, expectable, what do we look for at specific ages in terms of behaviors and abilities, but also what happens when that child does not get an optimal experience and how can we help them heal it? And the number one healing component is relationship, but we'll get into that because that's where the grandparents definitely come in. Okay. Um, does it do much with trying to identify what creates the def deficiencies and things? Is that part of what you're saying? <clears throat> yes, there's, uh, it's huge, right? So that was the overall <laughs> paradigm. Right, but right. In terms of, because um, they have multiple branches too, there's the neurosequential caregiver, which yeah. I highly recommend if you get a chance to participate in that. Um, the neurosequential model for educators, which specifically targets how you can use this paradigm in your classroom to be more successful in engaging your students and helping your students who might have some of these adverse experiences. Um, and then there's the neurosequential um, model for of therapeutics, which is the one that I'm certified in. Um, so, and in the NMT, um, a huge emphasis on that is creating what they call a brain map. And through a series of questions that targets the intrauterine experience, the mother's safety level, father's presence, substance abuse presence, other traumas, transition chaos, family genetic history. It's, it's, it's a really comprehensive metric. Um, and in using that metric, um, we can sit down and create a model, a working model of roughly what is working for that child and where they have met their developmental, like they've mastered the developmental challenges versus where they are still struggling to wire some of that stuff up. And then those, um, you'll see, well, podcast audience can't see my hands, but it's the right. model he uses is an upside down triangle. And so the metric generates an upside down triangle with specific squares that indicate targeted brain function, everything from reading and math ability to impulse control to memory, to suck, swallow, gag responses. Um, and then it's color-coded, red, yellow, green. Green is you fully mastered it for your age expectation. Yellow is close, but no, not quite. And then red is there, there are some serious therapeutic needs emerging for this child. Um, and then the other thing that I really appreciate is they switch the graphics in this metric and they give you a bar graph of Here's, here's a neurotypical adult, and then here's a same age peer, and then here's the child that you measure, right? So you can do a, a direct comparison for, okay, this, my Timmy is here, and, you know, mom used drugs, there's a lot of domestic violence, um, versus your Timmy is here and had an optimal experience, and my Timmy is shown to be a percentage point or whatever behind Timmy. And then it specifically targets if you have that, that Timmy has um, 
sensory integration issues or self-regulation issues or relationship issues or cognitive issues and shows you where those are and then generates a series of potential therapeutic interventions that have been evidence-based to show that they can be effective in helping Timmy to heal wherever the deficit may be. So, so they can regain what they've lost, whether fully or at least partially, um, through the therapeutic techniques and. Yes. Okay. Yes, there's. If there wasn't, if there wasn't the hope and healing, none of us would be doing what right. we're doing. Right. Yeah. Um, what typically happens, though, is um, there there is this there usually needs to be this specific combination and it's different for every kid and every family. Um, but once you figure out whether the issue is in sensory integration, so that's like brainstem diencephalon part or self-regulation diencephalon cerebellum, little bit of limbic. And then relationship is limbic and cognitive is cortical and right. So once you're able to sort of sort through specifically where that child's needs lie, then if you can create this nurturing, saturated, relationship-rich experience for the child, um, that's when we find the healing just takes off exponentially. Okay. Now, you mentioned four topics that you thought would be helpful for us to discuss today. So let's kind of take them one at a time. The first topic you mentioned was guilt. So share a little bit about that and what, what would you like to talk about related to guilt? Okay. So uh, you actually brought this up at our last kinship meeting when you shared your, your very powerful story of your, grand, your grandchild's experience and your experiences as grandparents. Um, in my experience as a therapist working with families, whether it's uh, grandparents or other kinship providers, uh, we often get around to talking about guilt kills, right? Guilt just, it, it's like the poison that sifts through and it's, it's expectable, it's predictable, right? And it's one of the biggest challenges that kinship providers And especially, if not the biological parents, then definitely grandparents that I've worked with have struggled with. And it comes everything in in every form from the, what did I do wrong question? How did I contribute to this kind of thing? Um, What did I miss? Am I doing enough? Um, Do I, is it okay for me to say no to my child? to say yes to my grandchild? Um, Is it okay for me to say no to my, you know, by definition, grandparents tend to be a little bit older, right? So grandparents are no longer in the 20 something set, typically speaking. And so is it okay for me to say no to my current peer cohort and, and their expectations in order to say yes to this grandchild, right? Um, so there's, there's a lot of guilt in this experience, um, because typically unless it's a car crash or, you know, your, your Dickensian orphan situation where mom and dad were both killed outright, 
you know, by a satellite falling on them, then there's usually been an experience of a removal of a child by some state agency or through a, a more informal, the family gets together and is like, that's it, enough, we've had this. And the child needs to move to a different kinship provider. Um, right. <clears throat> and so it's there. And my first recommendation is that we talk about the elephant in the room, you know, that it's ridiculous for me to say to a client, well, you should feel guilty. Well, you're going to feel whatever you feel, you know? Um, and so the first thing that I support grandparents and, and kinship providers in, in working on is let's take a look at what were the circumstances around your child and then your, your grandchild's coming into the world, right? Mm -hmm. and, and what were the experiences? And let's just accept nobody gets perfect parents. Nobody. I didn't. You didn't. Your parents didn't. Your grandparents didn't. I'm a bit of an amateur historian. If you want me to bore you stupid, I will tell you the story of Gilgamesh and take apart all of the components or a lot of the components that indicate Yes, society was messed up 6,000 years ago. So often the game that I play is I set a clock for two minutes and for two minutes, you're allowed to bag on your parents and blame the snot out of every generation that's come before you, right? right? Because it's fun, right? right. But, it, but it doesn't solve anything, right? right? Did, did you make mistakes? Yeah. Do I make the, yes. So if we can just embrace that and recognize it and find ways to forgive ourselves and focus on what do we need to do to do better at going forward, right? No, that's a good point. And, and definitely that is a very common experience. And one of the things we try to do through a lot of our blog uh, posts is just share our experience and be very real, very honest. And uh, so other grandparents can go, ah, I'm not the only one who's had that guilt. And yeah. guilt is, a, is definitely an emotion. And, and once again, we need safe places to be able to be honest about that. Um, you also talked about the importance of parenting classes and support. So share a little bit about that. You know, what do you mean by parenting classes and how you see the value in that? Okay. So... Um... I'm on a one woman quest to create parenting as a required class to graduate from high school, but we'll get into that some other podcast, right? Uh, so in the meantime, um, one of the things that frustrates me is, is um, when people say, well, kids don't come with an owner's manual and no, they technically don't. However, we have developed in the last 50 years, evidence-based time and time again, parent, grandparent, kinship provider, foster parent, adoptive parent, proven effective parenting techniques and interactions, right? And it's not something you're going to pick up on a single YouTube video or a single podcast. These are all really great and supportive. And if you did an entire series, fantastic, right? But there are, there are ins and outs and nuts and bolts of parenting that make in parenting classes that make it so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? So some of my favorites, um, and I don't get 
I'm not a sponsor of or don't get any kind of kickback, but um, Love and Logic has been around for decades. It's no nonsense. It's common sense. It corrects a lot of the myths of parenting. It is super accessible. I'm hard pressed. Maybe a couple of places in Alaska maybe don't have Love and Logic. They're usually free. And they have multiple age groups like infancy to toddlerhood and, and, and so on up all the way up through, through adolescence. Um, and it takes a very common sense, creative approach to, to boil it all down it, with all due respect to the love and logic people. I'm gonna try to paraphrase. Basically what they set up is we are the gatekeepers, right? We set up reasonable consequences for our children to learn if you choose appropriate, loving, kind, respectful behavior, then behind gate A are these consequences, very positive, loving, fun, right? You get to go out and play with your friends, uh, watch TV, play on your Xbox, whatever the consequences, right? But then, and then the opposite is true as well. If the child chooses inappropriate, disrespectful, harmful, unkind behaviors, then we're still the gatekeeper. We, it becomes our responsibility to allow them to make the choice and we simply open the gate. And then what love and logic does is so that again, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. They generate and help you think about what are some natural and logical nurturing consequences so you don't have to think about it all. And they also do the process of, you don't have to come up with the consequence in that second. It is you know, fair game as the adult to say to a child, you're gonna need to take a time out in your room. Well, what's my consequence? Mommy needs to think about that, right? <laughs> and that is a natural consequence. And that one, they sweat worse than the actual consequence, right? right. So love and logic, um, if you are anywhere near a community college or a university or a college, um, early childhood education, because they're gonna cover brain development. They're gonna cover what should you be looking for? What is ex ex not acceptable, but expectable behavior? not just physical development, which your pediatrician will go over, you know, like, are they walking, crawling, that kind of thing. But there are expectable behavioral milestones. There comes a point where your toddler is going to turn around and say no. And that, yay, right? Because, <laughs> well, that's a milestone. It's not a fun one, but it's a milestone, right? right. So love and logic parenting classes, um, early childhood development. And the reason I, I emphasize those is the, the doing it is hard enough in the moment. The take a breath, think what I just learned in class. What are my options? I really want to rip this kid's head off and piddle down the hole, but I know that's not the right approach. So, right. So taking the class helps to sort of prime our pumps and gives us permission to get creative and practice it in a class with other people who have similar experiences and feedback and sharing your stories. Parenting is a collaborative community. Raising a child is a collaborative community event. Anthropologically, historically, 
We are a social herd or pack creature. The, the idea of a single parent, that was like the worst case scenario, right? And so parenting classes kind of give you that built-in community um, with people who really do have a sense of what you're going through. Right. Um, so check out, they're usually free. And so I, I recommend going, I go back and take the Love and Logic course every five years or so hmm. just to sharpen my skills. No, that's good. In fact, it really leads into one of the things we talk about with our grandparents. <clears throat> one is one of the myths that a lot of grandparents have is I can do this the same way I did with my kids. And what I tell grandparents is you've got to go back to school. The world's different. And so we have to learn new techniques and there are new techniques that weren't available to us or approaches when we were raising kids. So it is helpful to go back to school and learn new skills that you will benefit from and your grandchildren benefit from. Yeah. And love and logic is one of the books we have on our websites as a resource. So, um, so yeah, so that's one thing we can help with is, is we come across some good parenting uh, classes that are available to people, we'll, we'll share that. So that's great information. Um, the next topic you had was expectations and approaches. So talk a little bit about that. So, and, and that kind of ties into that, um, that myth of I can just do it the way I did it with my kids. Um, the world's a different place, right? Um, we didn't have to deal with social media for better or for worse. And social media, it's, uh, it's like the last time our brains had to deal with this big of a challenge that had equal potential to be helpful and equally harmful. The last time the human brain had to wrap its head around this was fire, when our ancestors tried to master fire. Um, and I think that was 7,000 years ago, might've been longer. Anyway, um, we still have fire departments and houses that burn down and buildings that catch on fire and entire cities and towns that burn down. So we haven't exactly mastered that yet either, right? And so there are different expectations, or I'm sorry, there, there are different realities for our kids today that just simply did not exist when we were kids. Um, There are some components of old school parenting that if if those components are predictable, consistent, uh, logical and natural consequences, all suffused in a nurturing world, yeah, keep those. Those aren't aren't ever gonna go away as far as we can tell, okay? But there are, like I was talking about in terms of like um, in the the early childhood classes, they can discuss expectations such as toddlers are going to tell you no. Um, Eight-year-olds are never going to be able to find their sneakers on their own, right? And especially when you're running late and you need them to find their sneakers on their own. And they're all staring at the ceiling saying, I've looked 10 times and I can't find my sneakers, right? Um, So uh, re-familiarizing ourselves with, wait, what exactly can a seven-year-old do? Um, I got stuck in this. I try to do a, a 
holiday story as a big group in the schools that I work in, right? Because story time is a really huge therapeutic group component, okay? Um, and in order to make it work in the schools, I have to include math and social studies and science. So I break out for second graders, you know, the story came from 1822, this is 18, this is 2021, how old is this story? And, you know, crickets and drooling and just deer in the headlights. And I'm like, second graders can't do four digit subtraction. <laughs> what was I thinking? You know, and dude, I'm an expert, right? So having a really good handle on this is the age of my child. What should I be looking for in terms of physical development? Emotionally, are they, are they, where they need to be in terms of being able to name a feeling, healthily express a feeling and manage a feeling, or are they struggling with things? Um, you know, temperamentally, some kids are introverts, some kids are extroverts. Do they have friends? Do they, where, where are they going in terms of, do they like a whole house full of friends around or do they prefer one or two that they want to hang out with? Um, are they under the illusion that 7,000 uh, online gaming friends are genuine friendships, right? Because a lot of kids are struggling with that. It's like, right, but when the power goes off and all you have to play is soccer in the back, who's outside playing with you? Uh, I got nobody. Yeah. So helping grandparents really go back and visit, revisit, what are the, the age-appropriate physical, mental, and emotional behavioral expectations for any given age group that they're working with? You know, and, and I, the other thing I think is important to add into that equation is the fact that often we're dealing with children who have experienced adverse childhood experiences and yes. trauma, and so that even can add another component in the sense of even though they may be seven years old, they may not be quite there developmentally, emotionally um, because of what they've experienced trauma-wise. So I think we also um, have to add in the possibility of the impact of what they experienced growing up. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. And actually that becomes one of the, um, in the neurosequential model, there's like, there's a component of detective work. Like what, where exactly is this child struggling, right? And so one of the first things I look for as a clinician is, okay, I have a seven or eight year old child. These are the expectations for cognitive, you know, they can't do four digit math, but they can do two digit, 20 minus 10 kind of stuff, right? They should be able to, with some coaching, name their feelings and express those feelings or manage those feelings in a healthy way, right? Like they might need a nudge to go draw a picture or yell into a pillow or go take a run around the court. But once I suggest those, that seven or eight-year-old child should be able to self-generate maybe one or two more and then go and do it and actually experience the regulating and, and relationship management that we're asking them to do, right? So if I have a seven or eight-year-old child who uh, 
Timmy takes, Timmy's the child. Tammy comes over and says, I want to play with the green truck now and takes the green truck. If Timmy turns around and is like, hey, Tammy, I'm playing with the green truck. You know the rule, 10 second rule, you count to 10 and then I give you the truck and then I count to 10, right? That's eighth grade management, right? there, Or eighth, eight year old management right there. But if Tammy comes over and takes the truck and Timmy throws himself down on the ground and is pounding with his hands and his fists or is yelling and screaming or go tearing after Tammy, grabs her by the hair and throws her down and kicks her, that's a toddler response. And that gives me a huge clue as to where I need to start the healing process with this child, right? Talking to Timmy through it is not going to work because Timmy has the management skills of a toddler, not an eight-year-old. And so again, knowing what the neurotypical expectations are and being able to see sort of where your child or grandchild is fitting or not fitting gives you a really solid footing around uh, where do I need to start and um, whether or not you need to seek professional support at some point. Right. I think related to the expectation, um, one of the things that is kind of more I've, I've used this concept more with adults, but I think it relates to what we're talking about is um, I'll never forget a story I, I heard from a psychiatrist from Europe who worked with borderline personality women. <clears throat> and it was, you couldn't get away with this in the United States, but basically in this facility in Europe, you could actually, the women could actually chuck out razor blades to cut themselves under supervision mm -hmm. and, and kind of harm reduction kind of model. Um, but uh, but the, the main point was, what he said was, he said, well, what I teach my staff is, at that moment, when this young lady needs to cut herself, you need to understand that at this moment in time, this is the best she knows how to do. Yes. And you need to accept that. Now, yes. what I always tell people is that's not where you end, but it's a great nope. beginning. And if yes. you can accept that, then you can become a resource for that person and when they need that acceptance at that moment. And then hopefully over time, you can teach them new skills and other options. But at this moment, it's the best she knows. And I, I was thinking yes. about that while you were talking. I think it relates to what we're saying is although maybe they're seven, maybe they have three-year-old or five-year-old coping skills. Mm -hmm. So at this moment, that's the best they know how. And we, mm -hmm. if we expect them to have seven-year-old coping skills, there's going to be a gap there. We're going to have some problems. But if we accept that they have three-year-old coping skills, although they're seven, okay, that's where we start. Yes. And I accept that. Now we can work on developing coping skills that they didn't learn earlier, but now can learn with time and patience. But I think that acceptance piece of where they are versus where you think they should be is very important. Yes, yes. And that that was that's spot on what I was when when I included that as things that we might want to talk about today is what are what are neurotypical and reasonable expectations given the age of the child? Where is our particular child? And then being able to accept, yep, they're here, 
but the, that's just where the teaching begins. That's where the practicing begins. That's where that, those key relationships of, if I know I have an eight-year-old Timmy out on the, the playground um, at one of my schools, then one of my jobs is I provide a level of supervision to that eight-year-old Timmy that is closer to what I would provide to a three-year-old, right? right? So I physically stay closer. I provide cueing. I let Timmy know, hey, Tammy's coming over. She may want to play with the truck. What are the rules about playing with the truck, right? So I help Timmy, that eight-year chronological eight-year-old Timmy, by cueing him the same way I would if he was actually physically three years old. Right. And so a big piece of that, that, that is the struggle is helping grandparents and teachers and bus drivers and therapists and ministers and, and soccer coaches to understand Timmy is physically this big, but mentally and emotionally when challenged, Timmy's coping. This is, this is where he is. This is the best he has. And so it really does become our job to create that scaffolding to walk Timmy through the the experiences and the associations and and the brain wiring he didn't get for whatever uh, adverse childhood experiences, not enough relational quality time, whatever it was that interfered with that developmental process. So that acceptance of where they are, absolutely critical. You kind of already are talking about this, but let's go ahead and talk about specifically what is commonly needed to heal or to help the child reset going forward. Oh, in five minutes or less, huh? Um. <laughs> we're, we're open on time if you're open. Cool. Okay, so um, number one, Number one, and this is from Dr. Perry's research, uh, Dr. Daniel Siegel's research, Holly Van Goulden. I could list uh, Besser van der Kolk. I mean, it's out there. So this is evidence-based, right? The number one necessary element to heal a human child or a human at, or a human, right? Um, are quality relationships. So primary relationships, secondary, tertiary, all the way across the board, right? In order for it to go well in an optimal setting, that newborn, actually the mom, while she was pregnant, needed to have a quality network of people supporting her through, talking her down from the ledge when the hormones were going, um, encouraging her to eat healthy, exercise, see her doctor, right? So all of that intrauterine support, um, sharing pregnancy stories, not to scare her, but to get her ready kind of thing. And dad needs to be a part of those stories as well, right? So the anthropologists have come down to the golden ratio for human development is four big people to one little people. So optimally, mom and dad and either grandparents or aunt uncle components or older adolescents that are capable of carrying and holding and temporarily, you know, short-term feeding, 
keeping a child safe, uh, keeping a child uh, occupied safely, right? So that's how important, I mean, that's just one slice of the pie of how important relationship is, is that ideally, optimally, our brains require a four to one ratio, right? And then there's all sorts of research in terms of the greater, the more enriched relationship network that child is brought into. They have better vocabulary, they have better math skills, they have faster, what appears to be more uh, earlier developed empathy, problem solving, you know, all of the soft skills that IBM and Google are looking for nowadays, the ability to problem solve and manage your feelings and self-regulate and self-care, all of those things that they're paying big bucks for are developed in the first three years of life, optimally in this super enriched relationship network that a child is brought into, right? So never, ever, ever underestimate the power of relationship, right? And then the flip side to that coin is for people, I'm going to take a historical figure and she's worked with Dr. Perry, so I'm going to pick on Oprah, okay? Um, Oprah comes from an intensely significant traumatic history, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, right? Um, Her grandmother was physically abusive with her, but her grandmother was also physically present, made sure she was fed uh, roughly, but did teach her right from wrong, you know, to share, not to steal, not to lie, those kinds of things. Um, was not openly affectionate with Oprah, but Oprah knew that for the most part, she was safe with this human being, right? And then as her life unfolds, as our kids' lives unfold and more people come into our lives, the more people that we can have that are safe, predictable, consistent, and loving toward us, even if it's a teacher for one year, almost all of us can identify that one teacher. It wasn't, it doesn't matter what they taught us. It was the relationship that they experienced, right? So relationship is how we heal. And so our kids need that, right? Um, Our grandparents need relationships. So the group that you guys run is amazing because it gives that support, it it creates that relationship component there. Um, The other thing that kids who have experienced adverse uh, experiences or traumatic experience need or neglect need, um, they need adults that get it. They need adults that get that. Here's the expectation, but this is where you are. I need to accept that and meet you and help you grow up, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They need adults that embrace that they are going to need to practice and make mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes are going to be big mistakes. Um, For example, if you're dealing with uh, 11, 12, 13 year olds, um, cutting substance abuse and uh, really unhealthy, inappropriate relationships and sexual choices are coming up. 
And if, as you were, that, that's a brilliant example of the cutters, the borderline cutters in the hospital. He's right, that the psychiatrist is spot on. In that moment, that is the best coping mechanism that person has. Well, if my best coping mechanism is when I get scared, I seek an alpha male who may eventually beat me up or get me pregnant mm -hmm. or both. Right. But in the moment he wraps his big, strong arms around me and I come from a sexual abuse experience where that's part of what got wounded and twisted. Then if I'm working with a 13 year old who is going out and sleeping with guys, right. Then as a grandparent, being able to not accept the behavior but accept the underlying need that is being expressed by that behavior. That's really tough because we're asking under any condition, what, however, kinship, parent, grandparent, parent, bio parent, whatever, right? It puts us as the adults in the terrifying, vulnerable position of we know, we know everything that can go wrong, starting with death, sexually transmitted diseases, sexual trafficking. We know all of that stuff. And yet that child, that is her best or his best coping mechanism. So if we go ballistic and are unforgiving of that very painful reality of that child, that's when placements start failing. Right. And so finding tools and ways to help the grandparent and the child begin to heal that. And I mean, if it's something that significant, that's definitely a professional help. Right. Piece. So it sounds like it's the one, it's, it's the connection, it's the relationship, is the significant person in their life, which is the foundational piece. But yes. then this goes back to what we said earlier about the importance of considering parenting classes or at least reading, gain some, you know, some help. Um, that's why I know the support group can be helpful because um, the, the most important piece is the person being there, but then also um, if we can develop healthy parenting skills and techniques and approaches, you know, we will help them develop the more effective coping skills um, as they grow and develop. So, um, exactly. now you kind of touched on it. I know we don't, it's not a time to, to do a parenting class, but anything you could say as far as just some real brief, um, understanding about de-escalating techniques that you would recommend for grandparents, if they're dealing with an aggressive behavior, you know, from a grandchild, um, what might be some, just some real basic uh, tips or, or techniques that they can use related to helping that child, you know, experience calmness in the midst of aggressive behavior? Yes. Okay. So um, the best place to start is before the escalation has happened, right? So one of the things I recommend is sitting down with your kids and teaching them the four plus one basic feelings, right? Scared, love, uh, hurt, sad, and mad, okay? And, and the idea that 
every feeling has a specific message that it sends to the brain. So when you're feeling something, the challenge is to figure out what you're feeling, name it, and figure out what the message is, and then figure out how to express it, right? So scares message is I'm going to get hurt or I'm going to die. Love's message is really hard because I'm not Shakespeare. It's that warm, fuzzy, caring thingy that's felt toward teddy bears, grandparents, dogs, right? Um, uh, hurt is the physical hurt or the emotional hurt. Ow. Uh, sad is someone or something I care about is going away. And then mad's the plus one because mad only comes out if you first feel or are being affected by one of those original four, okay? And Mad's job is to come out and defend and protect. Usually when we're dealing with escalated behavior, you're dealing with a child who is struggling with, I'm feeling one of these underlying feelings, but Mad's come out as the big brother or big sister or the cop, right? So first step before they get de-escalated is sit down with them, some crayons, draw some pictures, go over that component, right? Also, while you're doing that, how do you manage those things? We're gonna breathe, we're gonna sing, we're gonna scream into a pillow. Um, I'm gonna use my words, right? As a parent, I'm not gonna expect them to do it, but <laughs> I'm gonna lay that foundation, right? Um, so that's, and we're gonna walk through, this is the beginning, this is the middle of it, and then there's an end right? You get your feelings hurt. Tammy takes your truck. You get really mad because you missed your truck and you love that truck and you got hurt because she hurt your feelings when she snagged the truck, right? So you escalated and this is what it felt like. And then this is what it felt like when you used your words or you counted to 10 or, you know, you, you breathed deeply and reminded Tammy to use the rules, right? So the beginning, middle and end um, so the technique is really, we're going to tell kids what they're feeling, because depending on the age of the child, they may not know. And kids coming from um, intensely traumatic or neglectful experiences, the, it's, it, it's, it's, very, it's, it's a very long story. But basically, they get these myths that feelings come from the outside. They're not a part of them that they're only there to get them in trouble. And then what's been modeled for them in terms of expressing their feelings is hitting somebody, screaming and yelling, throwing breakable things, um, drinking, shooting up, you know, cutting, sleeping around, right? So basically the first thing I recommend is that we teach our kids what their primary feelings are and what they mean. And then when the, the escalation has happened, that's when reminders of we're going to take a deep breath, right? And the first step in that is modeling. I'm going to take a deep breath. So I'm going to take a deep breath. And then in a very calm tone, as calm as I can make it, hey, let's take a breath, right? If they don't respond to the words, there are mirror neurons that when one human being takes a deep breath, the rest of us typically respond with taking a deep breath, right? And then um, I just heard this summation. So, and I can't remember the guy's name. I'm totally blanking on it. But his, 
His program is the Peacemakers in Prison program. And his, his selling point is how to de-escalate any or yeah, how to de-escalate any angry human being in 90 seconds or less, right? But it's based on sound neurology and, and neuroscience. And it goes something like this. Uh, step one, ignore the words. I hate you. You're the worst parent ever. I wish I was still living with my mom. We say mean, hateful things when we are upset, right? Step two is read the emotional data that's coming your way. Is this child sad, mad, hurt, scared, right? Well, they're mad. You know that. But what's the underneath thing? When all else fails and you can't figure it out, there's no like, oh, I saw Tammy take the truck from Timmy. But clearly Timmy's mad. Aim for scared. Okay? Because the worst that's going to happen is, huh, you seem kind of scared. They're going to tell you, no, I'm not. Right? <laughs> so, but then they're talking to you. And they are giving you feedback. And you're beginning that connection, which is going to help them de-escalate. Okay, so the first thing is ignore the words. The second thing is it, read the emotional data points. Try to sort out, is it scared, hurt, sad, right? And is there a love component in there? One of my teenagers pointed out the other day that jealousy is sad and love mixed together, right? And hurt. So right. love could be, <clears throat> right? Um, then the third step is to name, use you feeling statements, right? Timmy, you are mad that Tammy took your truck and you're feeling hurt because she jer jerked it out of your finger and you might have a little boo-boo, right? Or she hurt your feelings. So naming the feeling based on the data point because underlying mad is we don't feel heard. We don't feel listened to. And that ticks us off because it, it, it goes to that fundamental, I've been devalued as a human being. Right. right? One, thing I, one and, thing I would add to that is I wonder, um, I like to put it, put a little safety thing in there. I, I might say, I wonder if you're feeling, and then make the statement instead of, Yes. Telling them what they're feeling. That's something I, I get a little nervous about that. I'd rather like, I wonder if you're feeling sad because Tammy took your truck. Or I wonder, I'm wondering if it, or it appears to yes. me. It, I like yes. the appears to me or yep. I wonder. It just it, it invites the, the uh, identification, but doesn't nail it down as a fact until they confirm it. Yes. Does it makes sense. Yes. And I, I like should, the invitation. I, yep. I like to, I like to encourage inviting communication. So I'm going to invite you to identify your feeling uh, instead of telling you what you're feeling. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. That's my, that's and I, I would in practice, uh, when, when I explain it, I always forget the qualifier. In practice, it's it, it's so much more of a de-escalating when it's an invitation. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because especially if you're dealing with a toddler or a teenager, um, don't tell me what to do, right. including don't tell me what to feel. Right. And I'm going to argue with you just for the sake of arguing because I'm a toddler or a teenager. Yeah. But I like um, the idea of helping them identify because they may not know what it is. So you're going to help them, but you're yeah. leaving, 
you're leaving it out for them to correct you or say, no, that's not what I'm feeling. Yes. Yeah. Right. And a so lot of times. Kind of reflective listening skills. Yes. Um, a lot of times if I guess at or do that, I wonder if you're feeling scared about something, I'll get an instant no, because I'm not allowed to show fear. Right. right. And then I'll, I'll just, okay. Yeah. All right. That's cool. You know what you're not feeling. That's progress. Right. So let's see if we can figure nine times out of 10, we circle back to I'm worried. Yeah. Right. Or I got upset about it's fear. Again, it's the ignore the words and go for what's <clears throat> really going on for that human. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So continue on. You, you so went on. Okay. So once you get the connection, right. Our tendency as adults, because we operate mostly up in the cortical, well, we'll just think about it and everything will be. So then we're going to want to jump in nine times out of 10 to start problem solving. And if, if A, if, if you have a neurotypical adult who is not finished sorting through those feelings, then problem solving is going to be felt as insulting and a shutdown and disregarding and, and devaluing. Um, and it happens for kids too, right? So our tendency as adults is to jump in immediately as soon as I get that connection. I'm mad because she took my truck and start problem solving. What we need, not just kids, kids need a, a slightly longer period typically, okay? But even as adults, what we need is time and space with a safe relational person to feel those feelings and, and to just validate, you know, yeah, that, that sucks when somebody takes something without permission. You know, even if Tammy all the way across the court had been saying, Timmy, your time is up. It's my turn to play with the truck. We're not going to get into an argument with Timmy at this point, right? We're going to really give him permission to feel that and be empathetic to from, from his perception so that we can really get him de-escalated and, and going from that, that brainstem lower part of the brain back as high as Timmy is capable of functioning in, in cognitive land, right? As adults, we tend to jump into it too fast. So my rule in my head when I'm dealing in an escalation situation, de-escalation situation, is I usually want to have three minutes of stupid mindless chit-chat where Timmy, what I'm looking for is um, what's Timmy's breathing pattern? Is he responsive without even minor versions of escalating, right? Yeah, that, that's really tough when somebody takes something that you're playing with and didn't, you know, didn't act. Yeah. And then he cranks. No, versus. Yeah. And it hurt my feelings because she called me. Right. So I'm looking for have the shoulders dropped, have have the eyes calmed down, have the fists unclenched. Um, I might toss out a huh. We're going to have to figure this out at some point, don't you think, to see if he's ready to do even baby cognitive problem solving. If he's not ready, we're going to sit with those feelings for a little bit. And I'm going to be modeling, regulating. I may be walking 
and encouraging him to walk with me. Um, I may be bouncing a ball because pattern repetitive motion regulates the human brain. Um, I work with a canine uh, therapy dog. Um, and so I may be like, hey, uh, Dexter has pokies in her fur. Can you sit down with me and help me pull the pokies out? Because then he's petting a furry, living, breathing animal, which automatically drops our heart rate and our blood pressure, right? Um, so finding in the moment, regulating activities, and then reading those, those data points again, right? And then when I've got three solid minutes, roughly, that Timmy is connected to me, then and only then am I going to talk about, here's the problem. You're not the problem. This is the problem. How are we going to solve this problem, Timmy? And in, in again, inviting him to be part of the solution. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And then uh, another, I'm sorry, one more piece that, um, um, that is a, pre uh, a, a, a preventive piece. Um, I go over the five steps of fixing a mistake, right? So you recognize, you name what the mistake is, you do a sincere apology, then you make amends, then you forgive yourself, then you try to not make the exact same mistake again. Make a better one next time. You know, <laughs> that's good. Anything related to um, like calming kinds of toys, maybe a safe zone. Do you do anything related to that? Yes. Yep. Um, with this caveat, <laughs> okay. any, any toy could be turned into a thrown object, a projectile, okay. right? So you have to you have to read the child, you have to read the moment, you have to read the environment, right? So um, the soft squeezy balls, again, patterned repetitive motion. Walking, bouncing a ball, uh, dance, um, petting an animal, hugging a teddy bear or some sort of stuffy, um, going to your safe zone, you know, like um, we're encouraging, uh, especially, El well, every age, but for teachers to identify a small zone, like a corner of their classroom that might have soothing music that they can put the headphones in, um, one of those air diffusers where you put, you know, the, the cool smelling mm -hmm. uh, uh, scents in the air, um, softer padding like some or even a blanket that they could wrap up in. Um, the whole idea is in that moment, how can I help you regulate with these comforting, calming, patterned, repetitive motions? So um, I get asked all the time about those, those um, they're poppers and they come in all kinds of shapes now, right? Yes. And, and they're basically, oh, yeah, they're like the bubble wrap yeah. of our childhood, right? Um, they're great. Uh, but quite frankly, 12, 13, 11, 12, and 13-year-olds have discovered that if you do it fast enough, it makes a farting sound in class. Oh. So that's going to send your teacher over the edge, yeah. right? A lot of adults, we struggle with, um, if you're sitting there popping, then you're not listening to me. When actually, 
you can use it as if they start out popping really, really fast and then the popping slows down, those are the data points. You're getting that kid regulated, right? So um, it has to work first for the adult, right? right? Um, but I felt like a deck of cards. I'll sit there and, and, and do the, you know, the shuffle, shuffle, the pattern. And the kids typically, some kids can shuffle a deck of cards. But the, just the shuffling, the pattern repetitive and that clicking noise and the shoof as they come back and then the, the packing, that's, it's a deck of cards. You can get that for like a buck 19, right. you know, um, you again, creative. exactly. Right. First and foremost, it has to work for the adult. Okay. Um, and then you're looking for pattern repetitive movement. So swinging, dancing, rocking, walking, biking, swimming, shooting basketballs. Um, I, I have koosh balls, those they're string balls. Right. Um, you can break things with a koosh ball, but you have to really work on it. Yeah. Um, and they're not frustrating for kids. It's right. simple, it's really easy to catch a koosh ball, mm -hmm. right? Um, I just used it with a 13 year old that was super agitated. I was in an office that didn't have breakable things. So I didn't care if it hit the walls. Right. right? And, and I had people next door that are used to the thumpy noises coming from my office. Right. So finding something that gives pattern repetitive motion is that's how we deescalate and self-regulate is okay. through that process. That's good. We're going to need to wrap up, but one more, one final question. Uh, you touched on it a little bit, but I want to be specific with it. Is anything you would share as far as signs that grandparents can look for in their grandchildren that might indicate they might want to consider professional help? Yes. Okay. So, keeping in mind that grandparents are going to be the experts on their kid, right? So, we look for um, <laughs> all of the symptoms that, if you will, um, all of the behaviors or concerning things are all, for the most part, normal everyday kid experiences, but they stick around too long or they're more intense or nine times out of 10, when you want to reach out for professional help is you've tried things that you know through your experience, specifically with this child, have been effective, like with nightmares, right? So you do the bedtime routine, you have the night lamp, um, you have their favorite stuffies, you read them the story, you tuck them in, you leave the door slightly open, the, the cat or the dog sleeps in their room, but they are still having night terrors or night, right? that may be an indicator that that child is processing trauma and might need help from a professional. Okay. Okay. Um, aggressive behavior, again, that is beyond age expectable. Okay. So toddlers, quite frankly, hit, kick, bite, scratch, right? Um, yeah one and a half to two and a half more so than three. We kind of want to see it calming down. But if you have a five, a six-year-old who is still hitting, kicking, scratching, biting, 
throwing over chairs when they get to kindergarten um, and they are not responding to classroom management. And, you know, it's not, it's beyond the first week of school where everybody's kind of not happy with the transition. Um, I would suggest seeking professional help around that. Um, here's the one that gets really complicated because we don't want to think of our children as sexual beings, but we are born with the erogenous zones wired, right? right. And, and ready for pleasure. So throughout childhood and adolescence, there are certain times and developmental stages of exploration and kids very quickly find certain movements feel good, right? Right. And so what it comes down to is, is if that child is not respecting socially appropriate boundaries. So for example, that's not something we do in the living room. That's something we do in our bedroom, right? That's not something you do on the bus in public, right? <laughs> With other people's children, right? Um, beyond the first correction, right? And, and not going ballistic of, oh my gosh, you're becoming a, no, you're not. Yeah. Kids play doctor, right. right? They've been playing doctor before we invented doctors, right? And they don't know. They're just, hey, I found this really cool thing that feels good. Let me show you because you're my best friend kind of thing, right? Beyond an age-appropriate boundary setting, if the child persists in it, right? Um, especially when they are being uh, when they are in stressful situations. So if children are masturbating at school before or during a test, right, they are going to get the harm of publicly being shamed because their peers are going to laugh at them and there's a good chance they're going to get yelled at, right? And, and that's an indicator when you can't control a behavior because it's how you're coping and it's your best coping skill, but it's consistently getting you in trouble. If, if the grandparents are not able to help that child reset that behavior and that trouble keeps coming from the outside world or even the, you know, within the mm -hmm. family, right. that's usually the time when you want to reach out for some professional support. Okay. That's good. That's very good. You know, as far as the, where you go beyond the normal kind of, you know, childhood behavior that can be corrected through normal kind of responses. So that's good. Yeah. Well, we're going to. Oh, and then the, the other, it's a little bit different in adolescence because they get into things that could quite frankly kill them. Right. So, uh, if your child is beyond the experimentation of, well, I really for real just smoked pot once or took a drink once. With, with alcohol and marijuana, that's one level, right? Um, it's terrifying because with fentanyl out there, it could just be a one-time thing. Right. So again, having that conversation before adolescence and continuing to have it, um, but if your child is beyond, uh, if your adolescent is beyond experimentation and you've sat down and done the, th these are the expectations of how we deal with substances in this home, mm -hmm. right? Um, including uh, nicotine. Right. If it continues and, and those expectations and boundaries continue to be broken, that 
may that is also a potential indicator you might need some professional support at that point yeah all right well that's helpful once again beth i really appreciate you appreciate you taking the time to be with us today and have this conversation about these topics that i think will be very helpful to our grandparents who are raising grandchildren so thanks for being with us so those of you You're who welcome. are listening this was fun good <laughs> Those of you who are listening, we appreciate you sharing your time with us today. Once again, this is Grand Thoughts from Lolly and Pops. And once again, our hope is in sharing our journey. We offer hope and support for you and your journey. Thank you.